following audio is from the Anglican Church, Caroline Springs. For more information about the church, go to taccs.org.au. A year old and we moved to this new part of the world as far as we're concerned. I don't think we'd ever been here before in our lives. And uh, since that time, we've really enjoyed uh, settling into this area, getting to know the local area, getting to know you guys as members of the church, and we feel really at home. Uh, We're not going anywhere until God makes us go somewhere, if he makes us go somewhere. So we're we're here. We've put down roots, and we're really happy to be living in this part of the world. But it didn't start very well. Um, We're really blessed in the Anglican church. Um, Pastors get given a a house as part of the renew, renew, uh, remuneration package. And, um, and so we're, we're really blessed. This house, we have uh, a house just down the road there. Nice big house to raise a family in. It was initially bought to run the church in when it was uh, just a brand new church. And so we get to leave there, live there and it's a really, really great blessing. But the first night that we were here was terrible. It's terrible. We were, um, we'd just moved in, we'd done it all on the one day, uh, we kind of locked up the, the doors to the house, got into bed pretty late, and then at 3am, at like the, the, you know, the, the absolute dead of the night, I just heard this beep, 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 kind of woke up going, what the heck? And then the loudest possible alarm started to sound, just immensely ear-piercingly loud. The, the alarm had gone off. Renee shot up. She, was, she told me that someone was breaking into the house. Of course, Indy, one-year-old, starts screaming. I don't know what's going on. I've got no, I don't even know where I am. You know, when you wake up in a new place, you're like, what is this? I've got the worst sense of direction of anyone in the church right now, including Avery down here, right? She, uh, the worst. And so I, I forget which room is where anyway, but the first night in a new house, I was completely lost. It was pitch black. I don't know where the light switches are. And this alarm's going off. Renee's telling me that someone's breaking into the house. I'm reaching for something to kill him with. Um, and, and, and India's screaming. And so I stumbled around, um, fell halfway down the stairs. It's handy that it kind of goes in an L direction because I would have just gone all the way to the bottom, hit the wall. I, I, I had no idea what the code was for the alarm. Um, I was just thinking, our neighbours are going to kill us. Still don't know where the light switches are. And then I remembered that Linton, who was the previous pastor, had put together a little manual for me of stuff I needed to know. I had a vague memory that I read something about an alarm in that. And so I had to get in the car because I'd left it up here at church. Drove up here to the church with the thing still going mental. Came into the church, ran to the door, went to the, my office, and then heard the same beep, beep, beep. This alarm went off. I don't know where the light switches are in this place. It turns out they're around the back corner there. So I ran back out again. I knew that alarm code, just remembered that. Went back to my office, had to pour through this like manual that's about as thick as this Bible, trying to figure out the bit where it said something about the alarm. Eventually found it, wrote it on my hand, drove home. And by this stage, it was, I don't know, 20 minutes of this thing going nuts. Got inside, turned it off. And that was our first night. In Caroline Springs.
And it was terrifying for a few reasons. It was terrifying because Renee was convinced that someone was there to kill us. And because we'd moved to the west of Melbourne, we thought that's a pretty good chance that that's going to happen, right? We know what it's like. It was completely dark. I had no idea where the switches were. I had no idea what the code was. It was just chaos. Baby screaming, just chaos. And it's a really evocative image. If you, if you can just imagine me scrambling around in the dark with no idea what's going on. We can kind of relate to that. We're, we're, you know, we, we say you know, kids ought not be afraid of the dark, but the, fr- the, the, the dark is kind of scary, isn't it? When you don't know what's going on, we're, kind of, we're, 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 we're creatures at the end of the day. We need to be able to see what's going on in order to survive. And what Jesus is saying in this passage today, if you picked up on it in the reading, is that that is the spiritual condition of every human being who has ever been born into the world. Completely lost in the darkness, in the chaos. No idea how to turn on the light. No idea how to get enlightened. No idea how to find our way to the truth. Spiritually, we're all in the dark. Spiritually, we're all blind with no hope of turning on the lights. It's chaos for us. We cannot know God. That's Jesus' clear teaching and the clear teaching of Scripture. And into that context, he comes and says, I am the light of the world. Those who follow me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light of life. And so just to reestablish the context for you, we've been traveling through the book of John and we're in this section now, lengthy section of, uh, of John's account of the Feast of Booths. This was the big eight-day party uh, for the people of Israel. Uh, it was a national holiday. Everyone was invited, irrespective of where you lived. You went to Jerusalem. You camped out in these little booths, these little tents on people's homes And it was a festival celebrating the goodness of God. Another harvest had come in. There were figs and there were olives and there was wine. And it was just a big party. Jews know how to party. It was eight days and it was just a big party. And uh, some scholars say that, um, that John doesn't mention it in the text, that they say the context for this discourse probably would have taken place, as John says, in the temple courts. But during this festival... Uh, every evening they would light a huge menorah candle, this massive candle, as big as a, a street light, and they would wrap uh, all the old uh, garments and robes of the priests that they no longer used around a huge wick and light it up, and it would just be this huge light to give light to the whole temple precinct. Remember, we're in first century Middle East, everything's pitch black at night time, and so this would give amazing light to the whole festival. And some scholars say that it's in this context that Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world, that very evocative, powerful image. And so in the context, yet again, we've walked into a confrontation. It's just confrontation after confrontation with Jesus. If you're the kind of person who doesn't like conflict, you would have hated to be Jesus in this context. He's just constantly surrounded by people who hate him, by people who want to dispute with him. We saw last week people who want to trap him, people who want to kill him. 
And so the religious leaders, and particularly the sect of the Pharisees, are hell-bent on attacking Jesus, on discrediting Jesus, and ultimately on killing Jesus. And so they come to him in this uh, little interchange, and they accuse him of being a liar. They accuse him of not being able to back up his claims to be the Son of God, to be God in human flesh. They say, you are a liar. You are deceiving the people. And so we'll pick it up in chapter 8 and starting at verse 12. We're going to take a look at what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world, what it means for Jesus to be the truth, the truth. Verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light, the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. These are men who do not believe in Jesus. They do not believe that he is who he says he is. They refuse to believe that he could be the Messiah, this unlearned carpenter this upstart from the countryside. They refuse to see him as God's promised king, God's promised saviour. And Jesus gives them three reasons why they don't receive him. Verse 15, he says, you judge according to the flesh. Verse 19, he says, you know neither me nor my father. And verse 21 He says, you will die in your sin. Verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. This is the reason that they're not receiving Jesus' testimony. They're judging him according to the flesh. They are judging according to worldly standards and worldly means. Scripture tells us that the flesh cannot inherit the things of God, because they are discerned spiritually. And this is the great materialist fallacy. The the materialist fallacy, the materialist belief, the the secularist belief, the, the humanist belief is that we can only believe in, we can only trust that which we receive with our senses, right? We can only trust that that which we observe and can test. We have our five senses, And what we can perceive, what we can test, what we can observe, those things we can trust in when they're verified. Everything outside of that is imaginary. A priori, presupposed truth that nothing exists outside of what we can perceive. But Jesus says, that's the reason you don't believe in me. You are trying to judge me according to the flesh. You are using Worldly means to discern spiritual truth. And therefore, verse 19, you know neither me nor my Father. He says, because you're judging according to the flesh, God is standing in front of you and you don't see Him. God is standing in front of you and you do not see Him. God, my Father, is in heaven ruling and reigning and you do not know Him. You know, a lot of people say to me, people who are 
secularists or materialists or humanists say to me, if only God would show up, then I would believe in him. If only God would show up, then I would perceive him, I could deserve him, I could test him, I could smell, touch, taste, you know. I would believe. And it's patently not true. There are plenty of people standing in front of Jesus right now doing that very thing and they would not believe in him. They're judging according to the flesh. God is standing in front of them and they cannot perceive him. And therefore Jesus says, and you've got to hear the judgment of the judge who will come to judge the living and the dead in verse 21. You will die in your sin. You'll die in your sin. You refuse to believe. God has sent his son into the world. Remember John 3.16? Not to condemn the world, but to save the world. That those who believe in him will not perish. That's your way out. That's your, that's your life craft. And you refuse to receive me. Therefore, you'll die in your sin. That's another way of saying you'll go to hell. You will receive the judgment that your sin deserves. So Jesus is right up for the conflict. He doesn't seem to be getting tired. We're into about round 10 and he's still throwing some pretty good punches. I want to talk a little bit about this. This issue of um, the materialist belief about only believing in what we can perceive. Because uh, uh, with a few of you, uh, I was on Facebook yesterday and we were having this, this great discussion, debate, um, as Facebook debates go, with, with a secularist, with a materialist, a, a mate of Pete's, and we were talking to him about these things and he was adamant that God could not be true. Adamant because we cannot perceive him, we cannot test him, we cannot observe him. Everything outside of those, that realm is fallacy. It's make-believe. But if you consider it, and you might be here this morning thinking the same way, if you just think about it for a second, if you just allow yourself, allow into your mind, past all those presuppositions and barriers, that the, the potential that there is a God who exists, who created all things and governs all things, wouldn't it make sense, if, if that is true, wouldn't it follow that we would not be able to understand him or to even perceive him merely with our senses? Doesn't it follow that if there is a transcendent ruler of the universe that we wouldn't be able to observe him in the same way that we observe ants in, a, in an ant farm? Doesn't that just make sense? Doesn't that actually reaffirm and consolidate the Christian view that we can't know God apart from supernatural means, apart from the work of His Spirit. To suggest anything otherwise would be, is kind of ridiculous when you think about it. Let me try and illustrate this. When I was at college, when I was at Bible college, because the New Testament is written in Greek, Koine Greek, ancient Greek, I had to learn ancient Greek. And so I spent most of a two-year period at my desk at home trying to learn ancient Greek, learning grammar and learning vocab and stuff. And I had this great big old, still got this great big old study desk. 
who's my granddad's over 100 years old, huge, big thing. And I knew I was going to spend a lot of time there, and I knew that I was going to require some distraction, and I didn't want it to be uh, anything too addictive like computer games or something like that. And so I thought I'll get a fish tank. And so I got a fish tank, also belonged to my granddad, set it up, and I got an Australian bass. It's this carnivorous fish. I like carnivores. I like stuff that eats other stuff, all right? I'm all for that, um, being one myself. And so I got this Australian bass, and they're just ferocious. They just eat anything. Um, so I spent most of my time digging stuff up out of the backyard and feeding it, and, uh, and he loved me. And he grew sizably. And so I would spend a lot of this time learning Greek and observing this Australian bass. I didn't name him. He's not a pet. He's just a killer, all right? So he's just bass. Um, and, and so I, I would spend all this time observing him. And, and over the couple of years that I had him, he got to know that fish tank really well, right? Every nook and cranny. He knew it really well because he was constantly looking for stuff to eat, right? Just wanted to eat the whole time. So he knows the tank really well. He knows the tank extraordinarily well. If you know fish, they've got that lateral line along their body. They can perceive things that they don't even see. But to suggest that he, by virtue of being on my desk, came over the couple of years that he was there to learn ancient Greek would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Ridiculous. He doesn't have any of the means to learn ancient Greek. It turns out I didn't really either, but at least I have the capacity to learn ancient Greek, and I got there in the end, but, but he doesn't. It's not that he, he couldn't see what was going on. He was right there in front of all of my books and all of my vocab, my little flip charts, and all of that was in front of him, but he doesn't have the capacity. He's of a whole other kind to me. We're both created, but we're of different kind. He's just simply a fish. And the truth about humanity, the human condition, spiritually, laid out in Scripture and affirmed by Jesus, is that no one is capable of knowing God. Billy the Bass, as my sister came to, came to talk, call him, erroneously, right? The killer bass couldn't learn ancient Greek because he is of the fish tank. He is of the rivers and streams. He is not of the world that can interpret those things. And likewise, we are of this world. We as humans are of this world. Jesus says it in his indictment of the teachers in verse 23. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I know the truth because I am of heaven. You don't know the truth. You are of this world. You cannot perceive the truth. And so just like a fish in a fish tank, we may be able to observe that which is around us, but we cannot perceive or receive anything any truth about God. Now, here's the thing. This has always been utterly and completely offensive to everyone since Jesus said it. 
So if you feel a little bit offended by that, just join everyone else who's ever lived, okay? Everyone is offended by that. Being told that you are incapable of knowing God, apart from God's intervention, is offensive. And it always has been. But I think it's particularly offensive in our culture today, where post-enlightenment, we've got the internet, we've got every piece of information known to humanity at our fingertips, in our pockets. We are educated, damn it, all right? We know stuff. And if we don't know it, we can look it up. We have been enlightened. And into that context, Jesus comes and says, you're not. You don't know the truth. You cannot know the truth. And here's the truth about Christianity. While we commend people to learn, right? We, we give a lot of time to teaching in the church. We commend you to go to a, a small group and learn more. We commend reading the word regularly through the week. Christianity is not a faith of the intellect. Some of the greatest intellects through the centuries have been Christians. All of the great intellectual movements just about have been driven by Christians. The great intellectual institutions of the universe have been founded by Christians, but Christianity is not an intellectual faith in its own right. You don't just lack knowledge. You lack ability to know God. You lack the capability to know God. So that the the, the guy with the lowest possible IQ can come to know Jesus as he reveals himself to him while the greatest scholar refuses to see Jesus for who he is. It's not knowledge that we lack. It's the spiritual means to receive the truth about God. So, Jesus says as much to these religious leaders, these learned men, these memorizers of the Pentateuch, of the first five books of the Bible. He says all of that to them, and like, perhaps like you this morning, they are offended. Verse 48, later in the chapter, they say, you have a demon. And by verse 59, at the end of the chapter, they're picking up stones to kill him. So what do you do with this Jesus who reveals your inadequacies? Do you shut him up and call him a demon and throw rocks at him? Or do you keep listening to what he has to say? I hope you do the latter. If that's you this morning, if you're here eager to know Jesus, and I know some of you, I can see some of you this morning who have That's the reason you're here this morning. You're just inquiring. You're just seeking. You just want to know who this Jesus is. You're looking for truth and you think maybe Christianity might have the answer for you. Then I want to really encourage you this morning. Jesus has something solid for you to receive. Something solid for you to stand on. Very often people come to me make a time with me, normally through the website, I call on the phone saying, can, we, can I just come in and have a talk to you? I'm thinking about some of this stuff. And, and I, I, that's just the best phone call I can ever receive. And we make a time and they come and sit down and we talk for 
up, you know, sometimes up to hours about who Jesus is. And quite often they'll come to me and say, um, I'm interested to hear what Jesus says, but I'm also checking out some other religions. I'm checking out some other faiths. I'm checking out some other worldviews. I'm reading some other things. And what they're trying to do is to, to find the religion that will make the most sense to them. And that's cool. Like, you know, check out as many religions as you like. I'm, I'm confident. I'm confident when it comes to Christianity. The cream rises to the top, right? But, but here's the problem with that. Religion isn't the answer. Religion is not the answer. Largely what Jesus is talking about in the Gospel of John is that very fact. Religion is not the answer. Who is he talking to right now? He's standing in a temple talking to the religious guys. Religion is not the answer. And Jesus isn't pushing another religion. If you've come in with that understanding this morning, then then let that go. Jesus isn't pushing a religion. What He is pushing, what He is seeking eagerly for us to understand, that Christianity at its heart is not a religion. It's about revelation. Christianity is not about religion, it's about revelation. Christianity is the understanding, not that you ought to do these things so that you might come to some kind of enlightenment, but rather that God has come into the world to reveal Himself to us. The rest of our lives are just knowing more and more about who God is. Jesus came into the fish tank of our existence to reveal God to us in a way that we could understand and receive. It's a ridiculous example, but going back to the bass, if God entered into the tank as a bass and communicated in bass talk the the deep truths of Koine Greek, then he would be able to receive those truths and know something of them. In the same way, God has entered into our world in the person of Jesus to reveal who God is. And He has left with us God's Word written in our own language in a way that we can perceive and understand so that we can know who God is. That was the purpose of Jesus coming in large part was to reveal who God is. And certainly the purpose of God's unfailing Word is to reveal exactly and precisely who God is and what He's done. And so while we stumble around in the dark, in the chaotic blindness of the dark, trying this and that, trying something to lead us to enlightenment, where other religions will have their gurus, their men and and women who are leaders, or or great spiritual teachers, or holy men, or whatever, who, who seek to lead their followers to enlightenment, Jesus stands and says, I am the light of the world. I'm not going to lead you to some enlightenment. I am the light. No other religion has a leader who stands up and says, I am God. 
There might be prophets. There might be people who stand as the kind of mediator between men and God or the, the greater kind of um, enlightened experience or whatever it is. But Jesus is the only leader who stands up and says, I am. All through this gospel, Jesus stands up and says, I am. And so that's why the purpose of this church is not to lead you to some kind of enlightened state, but rather to lead you to the light of the world, to lead you to Jesus. Verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. And in verse 26, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Jesus comes with truth from outside of our existence, from outside of our fleshly existence. He comes with truth from God to reveal who God is. Verse 14, I know where I came from and where I am going. Verse 23, you are of this world. I am not of this world. So the whole story of this gospel and of all of the gospels is that Jesus is the God-man who came from heaven, humbled himself to take on human flesh in order to reveal who God was and then furthermore humble himself by dying on a cross in our place and for our sin. The grave couldn't keep him as we remembered last week on Easter Sunday. God vindicated him. Let us know that all that he said was true about who he was by raising him from the dead. And now he sits at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over all things. He is the light of the world, the saviour of the world. And so the question this morning for us, especially if you're here this morning and you're just checking stuff out, is, or ought to be, is this all legitimate? Like if that's true, that changes everything. Am I right? If that's true... Everything changes forever. If it's not, complete waste of time. We should turn this place into a strip club or something, right? That, they're the stakes. So you might be here this morning saying, is, is this legitimate? Is what he's saying true? Is, is what Jesus says correct? And part of the reason we ask that question is because we live in a relativistic culture where our understanding of truth is very relativistic. We say, you know, the catch cry of my sister's generation, I hear this from my friends all the time, is each to their own. Whenever there's some kind of argument at the end, well, each to their own. Right? That's, just, that's the thing that makes it all okay again. Each to their own. You have your truth, I have my truth. You have your life, I have my life. You have your understanding, I have my understanding. Right? And so we live in this very pluralistic, very relativistic culture. Now, at the end of the day, and we can't go into this in in a deep philosophical way, but at the end of the day, that is completely untenable. Just try and live that way 
for five consecutive minutes and you'll find out that that doesn't work, right? I'll give you a story. I heard this from a, a friend of mine. It's a great story. There was this guy. He had a friend who was a Christian in university in London and uh, he was rooming in the kind of boarding house with a guy who was a, a secularist, a materialist, and he had this relativistic view of life. You get this a lot in universities, all right, where people don't live in the real world. People can kind of have these weird ideas. And so he, his, his whole life was each to their own. And his view was not just that truth is relative, but that words are relative. Words might mean something to you, but they, they mean a different thing to me. And so language itself is relative. And so at one point, I love this guy. I, I, I've never met him, but I, just, I, I want to give him a hug, all right? Um, this, this Christian guy, because this is a this is funny. Um, this secularist guy, relativist guy, got sick. Got pretty sick. Uh, I think he had um, bronchitis. Or, um, no, what's the other one? Pleurisy? Pneumonia. That's my dad. Uh, pneumonia on the level. And, uh, and so he was really sick in bed. And so he got this Christian friend, supposed to be really loving, guy um, to get him some stuff from the shop. He's going to go down to the high street and he was going to get him his prescriptions and some juice and grapes and whatever else you have when you're sick. And so he gave him a list of about 10 things and this guy went down to the shop, took the guy's money, went into Tesco's and, uh, and he just bought the first 10 things he saw. <laughs> and then he brought them back to the guy and said, here's your stuff. And the guy was, just went mental. Right? He was so annoyed. And, and the, the Christian guy said to him, well, I, I just came to believe what you were saying, that words are relative, so I just got what the words meant to me. You know, when it said antibiotics, I just thought shampoo, right? <laughs> and that's, and that's, the, I mean, that's, that's a funny story, but that's true. I mean, you, you go out to the street and you say to yourself, today... Red means green for me. You'll get run over, all right? It, it, it just cannot work. And especially in the real world where you have competing ideologies, competing truths. They can't all just mesh together and work. It can't happen. But I tell you, there is some value in that way of thinking. And here's the value. It encourages people to at least be open-minded about I found that the younger generations are actually a lot more open to talking about Jesus than people of my, my kind of generation or my dad's. They're more open-minded and it's probably driven by this relativistic understanding. At least they, they'll open the door to hear the gospel and that's a good thing. And so this morning, I want to encourage you, if you're thinking that way, you're thinking about your options, think about them. We might even talk a little bit about some of your options. So let's, let's chat a little bit about that, and, and, and we'll finish on this note, okay? Let's just talk about three things. Three options. You've got that materialist option. Nothing exists outside of what we perceive. There is no supernatural force in the universe. There is therefore no meaning in the universe. What you're embracing, if you have that view, is existential moral nihilism, that is, the understanding that because everything has just evolved out of nothing, essentially, there is no meaning, there is no objective moral value in the universe. There is, there is 
absolutely no reason why my life is more valuable than that tree out there that's constantly on the brink of death. All right? there's, there, is, there is nothing, nothing that makes me more of more value than anything else. In fact, that tree is absorbing carbon dioxide and giving out oxygen. That's more than I'm doing for the universe, right? I'm eating animals and, you know, like driving cars. Like, you know, when you come down to it, it's probably better that we keep that alive than me. You start getting into, and seriously guys, you start getting into post-birth abortion of, of disabled kids. Right? You, you, you want to go all the way. You can't, you, can't, you can't hold this view and then stand up on the, on the Christian morality side and say, no, we still need to love each other, but just none of that exists. You can't do that. That's what people want to do, but you can't. You have to give it all up. Eat or be eaten. Survival of the fittest. Why are we trying to save people's lives? Let's kill them. To quote a great materialist philosopher and actually someone who I really enjoyed until he died recently, Christopher Hitchens, and I hope you excuse the language, but he said, essentially, life is this. Life is a bitch and then you die. Life is a bitch and then you die. There is no meaning. Now that's depressing that is a depressing world view. But it gets a whole lot more terrifying if what Jesus said is true. Because it's not life's a bitch and then you die. It's not you just go to the ground and become worm food. It's that you die in your sin. It would be a mercy to die and become worm food. The reality, according to Jesus, is constant and eternal condemnation and judgment. So you can go down that route, but just make sure you go all the way. All right? If you want to become a materialist or humanist, go the whole way with it. Don't, don't, don't keep a foot in Christian faith that gives you a bit of meaning in your life. You need to give up everything. So that's one option for you. What about other religions? We've got more religions in the world today, more access to them than ever before. There's a smorgasbord of spirituality for you. And, and if I know anything about Australians today, particularly young Australians, they are ready to eat, all right? They've been starved for a couple of generations of you baby boomers squeezing it out of them, and now they're hungry, all right? They're hungry for some spirituality, and so they've come to the smorgasbord. The problem is that particularly in comfortable, affluent Western Australia, what we tend to do is take these religions and then make them in our own image. So I know that there are a lot of very peed-off Buddhists right now who are peed-off because they see a lot of Western people adopting the name of Buddhism because it makes them feel nice without any of the discipline of Buddhism. And so they've made it in their own image. They've made a comfortable religion for themselves that doesn't demand anything of them. What about Islam? 
right? The PR spin on coming out of Islam at the moment is that all that stuff about us wanting to blow people up is that's crazy. Islam is a religion of peace, all right? And so if you want peace in your chaotic life, come to Allah. And it's a complete lie. Right down to the bone, lie. If you read the Quran, you will see that it is largely a, a violent book commending violence. The, worm, the word Islam itself means submission, and the goal of Islam is to submit everyone to the code of Islam, to the law of Islam. When Muhammad received his, his so-called uh, word from Allah in the 7th century in, in Medina, his response to receiving that was to gather the faithful and march on Mecca and take it for the rule of Islam. It would submit, and so would the rest of the world. The plan of Islam is just to outpopulate everyone else. If you look at the map of Africa, they are literally taking a grid and planting mosques right the way across, trying to squash Christianity, which is booming in the midst of it. So what you hear in, in, the, in the media may cause you to question whether Islam might be for you. I suggest that you take a look at it without any of that spin and see whether that's really a religion that you want to sign up for. And then we have Christianity. We have the faith of Jesus. And, and we could say a lot about Christianity being a reasonable faith. There are some really good books about Christianity being a reasonable faith. If you want one on your way out, get from me a book called The Reason for God by Timothy Keller. It's a really good book uh, offering lines and lines of evidence for, for Christianity being a reasonable faith, something that we can, in, with intellectual integrity, proclaim and receive for ourselves. And we, we might do whole courses where we talk about the evidence for the Christian faith, and I'm standing here as someone who, who has tried a few different things, and I'm utterly convinced about the reasonableness of Christianity, the integrity, the intellectual integrity of Christianity. But that will only take you so far. Debates on Facebook will only take you so far. Arguments and lines of reasoning will only take you so far because, friends, remember, Jesus has told us that we cannot simply be won over through the flesh. Our, our minds cannot simply be won through a clever argument. That doesn't mean we shouldn't argue because God can use those means to reveal himself, but ultimately this is a supernatural miracle that anyone would come to faith. And so I want to point you to what Jesus points us to in this text. When you're having these discussions with people who, who don't, believe in Jesus, when you're trying to win people over, remember this. Remember this more than your reasons for creation or whatever it is. Remember this. And if you're here this morning seeking to know who God is, remember this. This is verse 28 to 30. Jesus says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He 
and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So the result is faith, and what Jesus points them to is the cross. Remember this. Without the cross, we have nothing. None of those arguments are of any use without the cross. That's what he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man. That's his way of saying, when you lift me up on the cross, then you'll know. You want evidence for the truth of Christianity? Look to the cross. That's where you'll see the truth. That's where you'll know the truth. And in the next passage, Jesus says, that truth will set you free. Set you free from your blind bondage and darkness. Remember that, friends. It's the cross. When you're comparing Jesus to Muhammad, to Joseph Smith, right, to Oprah, Jesus says, look to the cross and you'll see the truth. where Muhammad strove to submit, make the world submit to his sword, Jesus willingly died on a cross. Where Oprah amassed a cult following and made billions of dollars, Jesus became poor and humble like a servant, dying on a cross. Where Joseph Smith and other leaders sought to amass for themselves many followers for the sake of their ego. Jesus' body and blood were broken and shed on a Roman cross. And all of it done willingly, voluntarily, rather than leave us to die in our sin. Jesus says, and I say, that's the proof that you're looking for. That's the proof. Only Jesus was a man who lived his life in complete integrity. Only Jesus said, love your neighbor, love your enemy, pray for them and forgive them. And then on the cross, as his enemies tore his body apart, said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Only Jesus survives the true test. And only Jesus came into the world to die for you, for you, for you personally. And so what I want us to do now is to receive him again. I'm going to pray and ask that God would open our hearts because, friends, that's the truth. None of this that we're doing this morning will do a slight bit of good apart from the work of God's Spirit. So let's pray. Father, by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts to receive your truth this morning. We believe and have faith that you want people here to be saved. We believe and have faith that you want us to have our eyes opened to the truth of the Gospel. We believe and have faith that you will show them and us that you are the light of the world. And so as we follow you, we trust that we will no longer walk in darkness, but we'll have the light of life. We trust you that as we walk humbly, as your followers following you daily, 
that you would reveal more of yourself to us. You would reveal who God is in a way that we can understand. Praise God that you didn't leave us in our darkness. You didn't leave us to our sin. You didn't leave us to die the death that we deserve to die. But you came into the world, into our fishbowl, and revealed God to us. Lord, help us not to neglect your word, which is the full and final revelation of who you are and what you've done. And help us as a church, always, 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 to be following Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray this in his good name. Amen. You've been listening to the Anglican Church Caroline Springs podcast. For more information, go to taccs.org.au.